right. On this week's Dose, we welcome on Doug Donovan, CEO and co-founder of Interplay Learning, the leading provider of simulation-based training for the skilled trades. Now, for the pilgrims out there that may not know, Interplay is my employer, and I've been super lucky to have been here for over three and a half years and counting now. It's really been a long-time goal of ours, especially mine, to have Doug on the show, and so we've done that, uh, and it's also our first uh, in-person interview, which was really fun to do. Just the energy was awesome with Doug here in the room. Yeah, we got Sam CEO, our first in-person interview. Just a lot to celebrate with this one. Energy was certainly palpable, as you mentioned. And now for a little bit more on Doug and what you can expect from our conversation. So Doug was a natural leader from a young age. And after starting several businesses in his early career, he eventually co-founded Interplay Learning just over a decade ago. And since its inception, Interplay has evolved and it started more as a bootstrapped service business and fast forward to what it's become today, which is more of a fast-growing, venture-backed SaaS company. Yeah, and in the interview, you'll hear about Doug's entrepreneurial journey from start to finish, really. And a lot of that is the story of Interplay and how it did evolve over the last 10, 12 years or so. Uh, so he'll break down his thoughts on fundraising, how that was intertwined with the journey, uh, how he thinks about building an enduring company culture, uh, which is super interesting, as well as what Interplay's mission means to him. So a lot more than that, too, but just some highlights there and a really great interview. Right. It was awesome to have Doug on, and he's a great storyteller. And with that, it's our pleasure to share this conversation with Doug. Enjoy, y'all. Is he here, kid? You gotta just go for it. Don't think about what comes after or what came before. You just gotta bend your knees, take a deep breath, and jump. This is Venture Pill, your weekly dose of startups and venture capital. We break down recent startups in the news and interview founders and investors to help you stay informed in the evolving world of venture. All right, well, it's my pleasure and we're, we've been really excited to host Doug Donovan, CEO and founder of Interplay Learning uh, on VenturePill. So our first in-person interview, Doug, welcome on. It's, it's an honor. Thanks, thanks for having me. In person, too. It's like the real deal. Yeah, it's weird for us. We, we're definitely used to the Zoom calls, and to have that in-person energy will be a lot of fun. So let's get right into it. A lot of stuff to cover. We want to hear about your entrepreneurial journey, uh, and then dive in, of course, to Interplay and how things are going here. Uh, we're in the beautiful new office. Have to shout that out. So it's, it's awesome to be here. We want to start off with your early life in high school and college. And did you kind of always know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Did you always have that in you? You know, I, I never thought of the term entrepreneur in terms of like, I don't have the story of like, oh, I was selling, you know, t-shirts out of the back of my car. Never that sort of transactional entrepreneur. But when I look back at it, like, I was always kind of okay with going outside the lines, right? I'm, I'm a, a, a second born. My, my older brother follows the rules, yeah. <laughs> and, and I never did. And I wasn't saying I'm a, I was a rebel, but I always sort of thought like, oh, well, whatever creative way we can get there is okay. So I think I was always entrepreneurial in spirit. I was definitely a leader, right? Like I'm active, like whether it was captain of a team or just being active in, in the class yeah. or whatnot. And so I think I always pictured myself the leader of a company because it sort of seemed like I'd have a career 
and I've been a leader most of my life, you know, middle school, high school. And so I think looking back when you, you have those two components, that sort of willingness to be creative about trying to get things done and, and create new paths. And then I think that, that interest and always appetite to be a leader, I think it, it, it made sense that, that I would eventually be leading something like this. And I think I believed it too. I also watched my dad build a company, and, and I think that made a difference. It was a small services company about, I think his peak was about 20 employees, and, and he went from working for a big organization, big healthcare, into breaking out his own company, and okay. I was about 10. Yeah. So that's really a formative time, and mm -hmm. so I think watching him do that gave me the confidence also that I'd probably follow in that path. I, I still remember actually being 16 or 17 and him asking me what I wanted to do. And I think I said, oh, I want to run, build or run a company. Yeah. And he, he actually said, you know, it's sometimes nice to work for someone else. You don't have to, you know, <laughs> you, you sleep a little better at night. I still remember that. So, you know, I think he was encouraging at the same time. I, I think he didn't sell it as like, this is the end all be all. And so now jumping forward a little bit to your first job out of undergrad, how did you go from investment banking to founding several companies leading up to Interplay, where we are today? Oh, I wish I had like this perfect map and you know <laughs> how I how I planned it all out. But you know the the reality was coming out of school, out of college, mid '90s. If you were kind of a hard charger, there was finance was uh, you know big big draw, and and that's where I thought high achievers went. I didn't know much about finance versus business versus you know all these different things. Especially yeah. you know you're 22, you really don't know much about how you know how the segments work and the different domains and what the the activities are inside of those jobs. But but in my head, that's where you know you either went to consulting or to financing if you were in sort of that hard charger mode right. and. And I chased a job in, in New York. I figured if we're going to get into uh, into finance, try to go play in the big leagues. And had to use some entrepreneurial spirit to get that first job because I was grossly underqualified. I had done, <laughs> done almost no fi financial stuff in undergrad and uh, had to be creative to get that first job. And that you know, I worked in equity research inside of an investment bank. Fantastic place to learn the financial statements and understand that, and and see you know how business operates from the outside, right? Being an analyst, and but after three years of that in New York City, I realized okay, this isn't my calling, and yeah. and I also looked around. I was like, people are way better analysts than I am. Like <laughs> this is not my strength, and and I could tell right then and there. But I also knew I had some sort of foundational understanding of business then, and. The dot-com boom was going on in 99, and so there was sort of that go west young man mentality. <laughs> and so I uh, chased an idea to get out there and ended up joining with this other guy and starting this other company. And he was really the entrepreneur, frankly. I was I actually brought, ironically, the business, yeah. you know, financial <laughs> state. I could build models, things like that. He was more the creative going, you know, talk about a guy who played outside the lines. He was like an entrepreneur every day, all day. And so I learned from him, too, watching how he operated while I did more of the build the PowerPoints, build the models, that type mm -hmm. of thing. And we went and raised some capital. And, um, and that was the software business. So here I went from finance to software. And that was also, you know, incredibly enjoyable. But looking, you know, at that point in time, I remember specifically going, geez, I, I really liked the finance. That was great. And I really liked software. I neither seemed like my calling. Um, and I said, what I really want to do is go 
like be in the ski industry. I want to look out my window and see people skiing and think that's what I want to do for a living. Like that's, yeah. that's my calling. That's, awesome. that's what Sounds I thought, awesome. thought at the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It sounded amazing. So I ended up applying to business school. That was, you know, so April of 2000 you, before your time, but the market, you know, crashed completely. Mm-hmm. And we were still well-funded, but kind of sat around for a year. Nobody was buying software. It was really, the market was frozen. So when that was happening, I applied to business school. And in the application, I was very clear, I want to get into the ski industry. And I still, to this day, think that's part of the reason I got in, because it was at Berkeley and kind of the shadow of Tahoe and yeah. a lot of energy around that. So I think it was a unique story. And uh, and so they let me in. And uh, <laughs> I, I mean, it's a long story how I ended up actually getting into the industry. But the mini version is I met somebody at business school whose family owned this piece of land outside of Denver. And they were considering for years, we should do something with that. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, that sounds interesting. Tell me more. And long story short, after I put a plan together, I flew out there. I looked at the land a couple of times. And I said, this is what you could potentially do. And this is what it would cost. They said, let's do it. We'll finance it. And so uh, I ended up in the ski industry. And, you know, it, obviously by perfect design, <laughs> banking to software to ski. And, and so I ran that business, we built it, actually it took two years to build it in title and, yeah. and build, construct. And so, you know, I was a GC essentially for mm-hmm. about half a year anyway, a year while we built it and then ran it for a couple of years and then decided, oh, got it wrong again. This is not my calling. I don't want to do this for a living. And so I've been kind of bouncing around since. Yeah, and so I don't know how many years or months between that and Interplay, but how did you originally get involved with Interplay, the original co-founder, and just walk us through that origin story, if you yeah, will. Yeah, sure. So I'd moved to Southern California. Um, actually, I was chasing a girl, uh, <laughs> but she's my wife now, so that was nice. a very good both career and life move. Um, so I was kind of just taking what came at that point. Um, and I found this neat little startup out of San Diego and applied and met the founder. And um, it was kind of a bizarre startup in retrospect. However, the one thing, one of the things we did was we were really looking at energy efficiency in buildings and sort of green real estate, frankly, is where it started. And I started studying the market and we ended up one of the, uh, the, the products we developed was a training program for energy efficiency auditors, right? Really niche trade. My co-founder of Interplay was also there. He was doing something different, more on the financing of, you know, green financing type thing in his startup. And so we were in different departments. It was a 12-person company. I don't know if departments is the right word. (laughs) Um, And we, in this training program, it became obvious. It was blended. So we did some stuff online, but some stuff in in person. It just became obvious that these energy auditors, who we thought we put through a pretty good training program, we could only afford one day in the field. And that one day in the field was incredibly challenging because it was auditing houses. So we had to ask a homeowner, hey, do you mind if we bring 15 mm-hmm. students through your home and set up these blower doors? And, you know, and is there a dog there? Like you can imagine <laughs> all like trying to do that was really challenging and it obviously didn't scale. And, and uh, Steve, my co-founder, um, and I said, you know, you could use simulation and put these energy auditors or these energy auditor candidates in, in virtual houses, and they could practice mm-hmm. this procedure, which was really cognitive. There's a lot of variables. 
um, but it lent itself to real challenges for scalable, uh, you know, in the field training. And we looked at the military, medical, aviation industries and the success they were having and had for decades in simulation training. And we, and we looked around the trades and we kind of said, why is nobody doing this in the trades? It seems like it's relatively affordable to develop at this time and certainly was effective. And so that was, yeah, and, and we ended up leaving that company together with this idea. Mm -hmm. And there's some things we didn't like going on in that company either, so we wanted to jump ship anyway. And um, we got a little friends and family money to build that first software product for that beachhead market, the, the energy efficiency tradespeople. And so what's the approximate timestamp there? Where about are we, 2015, 2016? No, that's actually the end of 2010. Okay. So there's sort of two sort of founding points for Interplay. One is that, the original, and we actually called it Interplay Energy because we were just right. in the energy efficiency space. And because I had come off that dot-com 99 experience, which wasn't the, like, it was kind of crazy. Like the whole VC money was flying, and then all of a sudden the money was gone. Like it just didn't mm. feel like a good way to build a business because I come in in 99, everything blows up in 2000, right. but yet there was all this money initially, and then everything got frozen. It just said, you know, I said, let's just... In 2010, I said, let's not go the route of venture capital. Let's just build something, build, you know, sell one pair of shoes, get a little margin, try to sell two, try to sell three pairs, et cetera, that type of mentality. Now, obviously, it's software. We needed a little friends and family capital yeah. to get mm -hmm. going, but really no intent on raising money after that, even if it meant slower growth. And so we did that from end of 2010. I think it took us a year really to build that first software product, let's say the end of 2011 when we went to market and built a nice little company for four or five years and, and did not raise any other capital. We had, you know, won a grant from the Department of Energy along the way, we won some other big clients and, you know, built a nice little company that was profitable by the tune of, you know, say $80,000 a year, mm -hmm. like sort of enough to hire another person. Right. Yeah. And so we got to 20, end of 2015, 2016, and we just saw this vacuum in the marketplace for what we were doing and a real need. Um, and we knew to do it on the scale that we thought was possible would require a lot more capital. And so that was sort of founding that was sort of the founding of the company we know it is today with this appetite and ambition to build a global mm -hmm. platform, which really we weren't in 2010 to 2016. It wasn't really, we weren't really thinking on that level. The other thing about it was like, you know, when we did have those conversations, whether that was 2012, 13, 14, we just knew it wasn't scalable yet. Like we weren't really venture ready. So even if we had thought that that would be a path, like we would have been we would have been naive, and I think we would not have been successful in raising capital. I mean, you really need some, we need more proof points on scalable things. Like looking back, I always say like, we thought we were beginning to productize, but really in 2010 to 2016, we were really a services company. We'd built some capabilities and some, maybe some trade know-how, et cetera, but like there really wasn't, we hadn't really built a foundational technical platform that we could productize yet. Right, and so we wanted to ask, like, when was that moment when you felt there was product market fit? Maybe did that coincide with the moment you realized this is a venture capital backable business? Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say a couple things. One was um, when we 
when we started to, when we built our first catalog, when we started to understand what SaaS was, I mean, yeah. remember this is 2016, like it was relatively new, right? The, the, just the term SaaS and, mm -hmm. and we started to appreciate that. We, start, we saw a company, lynda.com, um, we used to see them at some learning conferences and we thought, ah, oh, like they just do silly videos and we do these incredible simulations, <laughs> like surely that can't be that interesting. And then they had that enormous exit with LinkedIn. They mm -hmm. became LinkedIn Learning. And that woke us up to the power of an online catalog. Like, whoa, this you know, online catalog is, there's some real learning going on in people's careers. I don't think we quite appreciated how much earning and learning was going on. And at the time, there was a handful of other white collar general catalog learning platforms online. But there was nothing for the blue-collar worker, nothing for the electrical, mechanical, industrial worker. And we said, you know, why doesn't the lynda.com for the trades exist? Yeah. And so that, was, so, so that was the point where we started taking all of our know-how and putting it into, okay, let's, let's put all this content we've built into a platform that's a subscription-based platform. And let's build enough content there that really uh, starts to attract whatever the industry was or the domain. In this case, we started in HVAC. So mm -hmm. it was really 2016 when we kind of woke up to the, I would say the gen, we call it the gen cat, the mm -hmm. general catalog, you know, yeah. mentality of this platform. Um, and then, so that was sort of point one. Um, I would say the next point was we had, we signed a big deal with Carrier, the, you know, obviously multinational uh, OEM. And we could really appreciate, we started to appreciate like the market needs this, like you needed mm -hmm. the highest level. And that was, you know, a big deal for a company our size. So I think we had had enough success with some SMBs selling our HVAC catalog. And then you win the, the big one yep. with Carrier. And now you can have some real conversations with some venture capitalist organizations to say, look, this is what it looks like. There's, I mean, it was, you know, that was seed. I mean, at some level, while it, we actually did a seed round with the Central Texas Angel Network right. here. So that was technically seed, but you know, the numbers changed quickly over mm -hmm. time. And almost the VC, when S3 came in, there was almost seed plus, right? I mean, it was only a million and a half dollars that they wrote. So right. I think we raised less than four in that first round. So by today's standard, I think that's considered more seed. Yeah. And, um, and so at th that point you started feeling this come together. I would say in that first, you know, eight months after S3 invested, it still was seed feeling. Like it was still a little like we didn't really have repeatable and scalable. Mm -hmm. We had enough, I would say, product market interest and fit, but maybe not. We hadn't quite figured out how to turn the, the repeatable and scalable yet, for sure. Right. And that took a good year, year and a half to get to that where you feel like, oh, this is what repeatable and scalable feels like, where you start having that steady drumbeat of, a BDR talking to a prospect to then hand into a salesperson to then, you know, three weeks later, a closed deal. And you start yeah. seeing that with some regularity, whereas before it sort of felt like, oh, look, we won some business over here. Oh, we look, we won some business over there. There wasn't that steady drumbeat. And, and so that was really, I think, the end of 2019 when we really started to feel that drumbeat. So right around when I showed up. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yes, exactly. Maybe a coincidence. Yes. Um, <laughs> transitioning a little bit more into the fundraising process for Interplay, you started touching up on it already, but what about S3 Ventures specifically made them the ideal partner to scale the business? 
Obviously, we have to mention that we had a great interview with Charlie Plochet yes, a couple yes, months back. Yes. Um, he's, he's a good friend of the pod. Uh-huh. Um, but we'd also like to hear about your general philosophy on fundraising and assembling an all-star cap table alongside S3 Ventures. Yeah, yeah. Now we're sitting in a good spot. But, you know, those early days were tough, right? This was not a story that was easy to sell at some level, it, particularly because we're selling new technology into old industry. Right. And, you know, that, that came with some, you know, sort of natural thorns that a lot of people wouldn't touch. Um, so we were out there in the marketplace and we got, you know, I'm sure if you've had other entrepreneurs on here, you got the stories of how many no's you got, right? I mean, yeah. just plenty and plenty. I, you know, I, I don't even know the numbers. But I will say this, because I had done the dot-com th- thing before and raised venture capital before and we had a board and, you know, so I'd been through it before I, I learned a, a ton of things but that first investor I mean talk about setting the tone for the the next decade of your yeah, life right. I mean <laughs> so critical and so I really was looking more than anything else was the person like who's going to be on the board who's the person I'm dealing with day to day and by far that that uh, you know outweighed anything like oh they've got a big prestige name on in Silicon mm-hmm. Valley or they have expertise in ed tech or you know you could go down and you could have your own matrix but to me it was like I don't care what that matrix said all I cared about was who am I going to work with on a day-to-day basis particularly at that stage when the board's active with you yeah, right like right. now we have quarterly meetings we're active but it's not like it was there we're there in the formation they're really trying to help you get out of like a in our case kind of a servicey business and help you see the light on what that what it needs to look like for you to build a scalable mm-hmm. repeatable venture backed business and and Charlie was that guy so I just you know he's just such a I mean you know him from uh, as a friend of the pod I mean he's just yeah. he's just a great human period yeah. and yeah. that made it easy and met the rest of his firm and I mean the the depth of smarts there from you know I could name him Eric and Aaron and and Brian who's the head of the whole firm I just I really enjoyed them from the get go and I thought they had a nice combination of like heavy analytics and like good you know personable uh, approach to it and and their uh, you know I talked to other founders who they had backed and they had stood by them in a couple cases where it was hard to stand by them so they just seemed like committed capital partners. Got it and then. Just to follow-up question to that is your general philosophy on fundraising and how you went about beyond S3 assembling the all-star Hall of Fame. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, after that, then you can start. Two things happen. Number one is if the numbers are good, you start getting, you get to choose, right? right? And we were fortunate. You know, we went from, you know, 1 million ARR, 5 million in one year. And that gets people's attention, yeah, right? Yeah. And and so then you start looking around. Not you know, So my philosophy as of, you know, for Interplay was different because we were fortunate enough to find that mm-hmm. success. And, and when it time to raise that B, we were just, the numbers were there and then doubled again. So all of a sudden people are paying attention. And so now you start looking at needs and you start saying, do I need an operator? Do I need an industry specialist? Do I need a, I mean, heck down the line, do you say, do I need a, you know, an audit and CFO specialist to prep the books to go public, right? Like mm-hmm. at different stages, you'd want different people. Totally. I mean, that would be a waste on us today, right? Yeah. But in three, four years, who knows? That might be the kind of, you know, thing you'd be looking for to add mm-hmm. to your board. So what I tried to do is start building depth in other areas. We brought on, right from the get-go, we brought in a guy named Sam Decker, who you should also have on the pod. Yeah. Um, who's you know well known in Austin had several ever, ex- uh, exits along the way, 
fantastic product marketing mind, just can position companies and products and really understands like the emotional buying process of, you know, clients. He's just, he's fantastic. And he was an operator. So Charlie was not an operator. So we put um, Sam on the board. So now mm -hmm. we had an operator. We had Charlie um, with his venture investment background and, and his ability to see the patterns of other companies, et cetera. Um, then at some point, I don't know, uh, timeline, we'll just ignore the timeline, <laughs> we added Owl Ventures, whose specialty is ed tech. And there was plenty of times in the boardroom before we added Owl, we would say like, geez, what would, you know, so-and-so company in the ed tech space be talking, like how would they handle this? Or how'd, mm -hmm. they, how'd they handle this struggle with like, let's say, you know, uh, trade schools and how their buying cycle and how they set up sales teams to go after the education market versus, you know, the SMB market. So, right. geez, it'd be nice to have some ed tech knowledge here as well. And so we brought in in Chu from, from Owl Ventures. And um, since then, I mean, there's also, it became, a, one of them became a bit of a party round, as a term you probably know, where all yeah. of a sudden, you know, a bunch of people in throw in some money. Too. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I want, you know, put 750 in for me or a million in for me, and they're kind of toe in the water type thing. So we brought in a couple others there. I mean, I hope I don't forget anybody, but SJF was one, and um, SJF, a gentleman named Arun there really knew the workforce training space, so he had good visib like visibility around the impact side of the companies who were m taking people from you know unemployable to employable or employable to like really good careers, and they had done a lot of investing, impact investing around climate and a lot around workforce. So we really understood that. So bringing them in as well. So I just try to piece together. And so I think if you're a founder, you know, you're trying to find the pieces you don't have. And like, if I have any strengths, like it's my ability to see all my weaknesses. <laughs> like there's just a lot of things I'm not particularly good at. And so being able to identify those and, and try to bring in some help there really, really made a difference. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant approach to diversify the expertise across the cap table so yeah that's right you know what it also does it leads to fewer arguments because <laughs> there's usually like somebody who knows the most about one thing right. uh, you know I say yeah. that yeah tongue-in-cheek a little bit but we've had <laughs> I mean it's been a very healthy board to, yeah. to but we also haven't had the tough the really tough days yet so mm -hmm. I'm sure those days will come and then we'll really figure out like yeah. the, you know I, how the board behaves and you know when we get some real headwinds or have some real challenges right now it's been mostly mostly up into the right not certainly not without a lot of struggles but mostly positive of course it's it's a good segue we wanted to shift gears back towards the operations of the business and building a venture back company is never easy nor linear as you said and we wanted to see if there were any moments that you were just thinking, hey, is this even, is this even worth it? Um, is this going to work out? Yeah. We keep going. Any, I, any down? Throws? I mean, not since like this morning. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it really is. Like yeah. it is. I mean, you got to show up every day. And like today was one of those, like I had three bad news piled up on me at a time. And you just kind of get used to that a little bit, right? It's just, that's just the nature of the beast. And so... I, you know, I, I would think it would be, I, I don't think there's an entrepreneur out there. I mean, other than those crazy, like, you know, crazy success stories that go viral and everyone likes talking about them, whether yeah. it's Google or Facebook or whatever, like, they're to me like the supermodels. Like, they're in such a small class, we can't even talk to them. We have sort of talk, most of us are in the middle section here. And I, and I don't think, 
I mean, I think every day is a, I really do, is a bit of a battle. Even when things are going well, you just, you know where the warts are because you're yeah. going so fast. Like, oh, we haven't dealt with that yet. Oh, well, it's not, you know, in the top, top five things and it's been six through 10, but you know it's there. Mm-hmm. And so you're always, you know, there's always a little action below the water that you're a little worried about. And, and, you know, a lot of times you resolve those. Sometimes they're, they're, they're at, you know, challenge six for a reason. They're not that big a deal. Yeah. But as an entrepreneur, you're always worrying about all parts of the business. Um, so I would say, yeah, I would say plenty of times along the way. I, you know, I think we, the thing that, that can really mitigate that is making good hires, like, and, and working with people you really like. And yeah. so, uh, you know, every day you battle a little bit, but if you're battling with people you enjoy and respect, that makes it a whole lot easier. And particularly, like, in this case, like, our leaders are so good in their functional areas. Like, I feel very confident mm-hmm. that, like, we got we have the right person tackling that problem. So yeah. that allows me to sleep a little better now at this scale and, and speed. And uh, those fires I used to always have to put out myself. And, and now it's kind of nice that there's other people to put those out. And they're better at it. And they know more about it than I do. So that gives me more confidence. Yeah, I think that's well said. I mean, in any industry, having teammates that you trust and enjoy working with obviously kind of helps achieve the common goal a lot easier. Um, looking forward a little bit, Interplay recently recently raised some capital that will mm-hmm. allow it to continue growth into 2025. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, so we'd love to hear what's next for the company on the horizon for the next couple of years. Um, you know, continuing to do what we do well, well, right? right. Staying focused, keeping the main thing the main thing. And, and you know, we serve the mid-market really well in the general maintenance industries and in HVAC, plumbing, electrical. Uh, so continuing to win there is important. So that means running, you know, the right uh, program sales and marketing programs to keep that engine going. Meanwhile, we're really looking to move up enterprise a little a little more. And we have plenty of enterprise business today, but we want to do it, you know, more of it. And we want it to be bigger scale. Yeah. And so um, we're comfortable that we have we have what we need to do that. But it takes time. It takes some patience. And, and it means looking at our product and saying, okay, where do we have to enhance the product capabilities? Or where do we have to bring in some outside services, et cetera, to support a, a broader solution? So that's a, a battle we'll be facing over the next 18 months as we talk to these large these, these firms with large workforces in blue-collar work, right? They might have 2,500 hands-on technicians and don't have a solution on how to recruit, ramp, retain, et cetera. And here we come with a really unique solution to that. But sometimes the content doesn't align perfectly. Like, well, how are we going to do that? Can we give them some tools, like user-generated content tools? Can they? Can we take some of our capabilities and give it to customers mm-hmm. to broaden our, our addressable market? So there'll be some things around that. So you know, as we move up market, I think it's going to broaden our product offering a little bit, which I'm excited about. Very yeah. exciting. Um, you know, the the VR piece of it's interesting. So as you know, we offer you know our our product in VR and also on what we call screen space, which is just through your browser or through an app on a, a 2D screen. And the VR thing has been, you know, kind of a siren song for a lot, like people chasing it. And, you know, I, I believe in it. I think it will happen, but I think there's still some real challenges to broad adoption. And so I think we can be patient on that front. It means, well, we'll continue to innovate there, but I don't think we'll see a ton of market traction from that innovation. I think you need some macro things to change for mm-hmm. us to really see broad VR adoption. 
uh, but certainly over the next year and a half, we'll continue to innovate in, in that area. Yeah, it's, it's super exciting. And it's a fun rocket ship to be a part of. Um, the culture at Interplay is special. And of course, it's the only company I've really worked for. I <laughs> feel so fortunate. Uh, but I know it is special and it's unique. How do you think about building that culture and, and maintaining it moving forward? Yeah, that's a good question. I, and I, I spend a lot of time on culture. Um, everybody who joins the company, I do a half an hour session minimum with them on what we call ethos in action. And we have an ethos. We we look at and believe in, and we actually authored it back in 2014 and, and haven't altered a word. And I think it's, wow. you know, mostly true today. I think there's some things <laughs> I'm like, ah, oh, we got to emphasize this more. Like that's fading. Let's bring that back a little bit. So, you know, I often in that session talk about how, and I mentioned it earlier, I, we have great functional leads here, right? You know, whether it's VP of sales or VP of customer success right across the board. And so that frees me up as the CEO a little bit to, you know, do some other things that otherwise maybe don't get the attention yeah. they need. And and when I think about Interplay, like, we're going to be successful, right? There's And there's a broad range, right? Are we a global huge success? Are we, like, a modest success? And I think the only way we fall out of that band is if culture goes south. Yeah. And so for me as CEO, I think if that's a real, you know, existential threat to get yeah. out of success range, I better make sure I'm spending some time on it. So now I'm pretty conscious about it. Um, that being said, I would say, like, as a young founder, or, or, or I guess I wasn't that young when I founded this, but when we got it going, you're thinking more about solving the business problem and the market and, you know, all those. And I wasn't thinking about culture early. However, in those early days, we did all contract to hire. Mm-hmm. And contract to hire is really interesting that you look back and you realize like, oh, we had a lot of contractors who we never hired because we either didn't like working with him or her or they didn't produce like they said they would or whatever. But those who you do hire, you end up really feeling like, oh, we got the right person. And so in those early days, that first five or six years, um, we just ended up with this really strong group yeah. with a really strong culture. And it wasn't very intentional. Mm-hmm. It really was a function of just hiring good people we enjoyed working with who produced, you know, good whatever their contribution were, mm-hmm. were respected. And so when we decided to raise that capital in 2016 to really build the sort of the new version of Interplay, the biggest pushback I got back from those 12 or 14, I don't know how many people we had at the time, was like, don't screw this up, Doug. Like, <laughs> we really love working here every day. Like, is this money going to change all of that? And so when I heard that, I thought, okay, we got to be serious about the culture moving forward. And so early days, I from that point on, 2016 to probably 2020, I was I interviewed everyone. I interviewed you, mm-hmm. right? Like, I interviewed you, you, anyone who joined the firm I'd spend plenty of time with. And I was doing mostly cultural interviews. Were they going to be a good fit? Yeah. Um, at the pace we grew last year, that became impossible in terms of um, meeting everybody. But I think mm-hmm. for the most part, we made enough good hires along the way that, you know, the classic A players invite A players. And, and I think A culture players also invite A culture players. Mm-hmm. And and when we make a, a bad hire on culture, it, it shows up inside of the first two months. And we rarely let it last to the third month. Like mm-hmm. you quickly identify it's not the right fit. They don't have that sort of, you know, optimistic attitude, which we kind of require here because of the daily battles. Yeah. Or, or they don't have that, uh, you know, commitment to each other. Or, and so we'll make a change pretty quick when, it, when it's a cultural challenge. Mm-hmm. And I think that helps protect it. There is... You know, there's an old joke like, 
I don't, I don't know if it's if there's swears in it or not. I don't think so. But it's sort of like, how do you keep all the happy employees, right? Like they ask the CEO as us, all these happy employees, and he he says, I just fire the unhappy ones. <laughs> I don't know if that gets me in trouble, but I, I generally believe like people who are happy to be here, really contribute, like they stay here, right? And the people who are sort of negative about, ah, oh, this doesn't work. It just doesn't usually work in a startup environment. So pretty quickly, we, you know, we're able to protect that culture with the, the, the core people who have just committed to this ethos and what we're building here, which I, you know, think, and I think you do too, is very yeah. special in terms of the mission and what we're able to do mm-hmm. every day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a great call-out mission. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Uh, so our next question is, the mission of Interplay is very clear and succinct. Better careers, better lives. I think I saw it on the wall as soon as yep. I walked in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd love to hear precisely what that means to you, and how does it feel to see your company make such an impact on so many people? Um, that's a good question. So, you know, it starts with the employees, right? Like we talk about better careers and better lives for us. And if we sort of start there, that's usually can lend itself to good, you know, output. And, and hopefully you can have that same impact outside the walls of the company. Um, for us, that uh, that shows up in a lot of ways, right? We talk about, like, moving around the company if you need to. Like, hey, if you want to be in CS, like, apply for that job, et cetera. So we're, we're looking for, for ways to, to do that. Um, and, you know, fundamentally, I think we all know how much time we spend at our our, in our working lives like we just you know you're spending 40 hours minimum with with this group so that career is such a big part of your life that we've always just thought like if you just have a better career if you have a better you know Monday morning through Friday afternoon you're very likely to have a better life right that's not right. there's nothing novel about that idea but we've been able to kind of institutionalize it in what we offer right because we've been able to say look what can we do to help somebody who's generally unemployable right now with skills or maybe has a gig job that's really a dead-end career and get them employable and get them on these in these blue-collar paths which are incredibly financially mm-hmm. rewarding people don't quite appreciate how how you know there's really no ceiling to these oh, yeah. the, these opportunities they're in, they're in demand today um, can we help people do that and that that's pretty special when you we have a, a customer stories channel on Slack, and it's like it lights us up every day when somebody posts some story about, you know, Sally or Bob, and this is where they were, and this is where they are, and this is the note they wrote to us, yeah. how this has changed their life, and now they're, you know, on a path they never thought they'd be on. And, and so it, it, it nourishes the organization, right? So you've got to run the sort of the bigger deals because they're big and sexy and they pay a lot of bills. But we also do a bunch of work today. Uh, we had a, a, a deal clo- close called, um, how was it, Shelters? Did you see that today? Oh, yeah, it was Yeah, it's an it's a, a organization that helps homeless folks move into, you know, get training so that they can get jobs. And so here we are doing, it's a, you know, modest size, a very small deal actually in the end, but like that's the kind of deal that excites the whole organization, right? It's one thing to win the brand name, you know, large private equity backed service roll-ups and it's another to win something like that and be able to make that kind of impact. So I think if you're willing to like, if if you're willing to commit yourself to interplay, and it's gonna, you know, it's gonna be a grind, right? This is a tough thing. You're, it's mostly like, mostly we come to work because there's problems every day, and <laughs> right. and you get paid to try to solve those problems at a high high velocity. Like 
you need a little of that nourishment. I think that mission really helps. And um, uh, so it's always been with us from the, the get-go. And, and, you know, I, I say it all the time, like I feel f- really lucky that that's what we do. And, and you know, I love the marketing widget companies because we use them and thank thank thanks to those companies and those founders who built those marketing widgets or sales widgets or whatever. I just, I feel very lucky that our output is really directly related to better career development and we know it leads to better lives. Yeah. Well, Doug, shifting gears to wrap up the interview, kind of have some shorter questions here, a little bit more about you personally. How do you balance work and family life? That's no easy task. Yeah, you know, I think it's actually easier than it used to be. I think um, I think two things. One, I think culturally the, the startup world is not sleep under your desk anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if that's good or bad or if it's going <laughs> to lead to our demise, but like that's not our culture here, right? We're pretty, we say right in the ethos, mm-hmm. uh, the job fits your life, not the inverse. And we kind of celebrate when somebody, you know, has on their calendar from 3 to 3.45, they don't take meetings because they have to pick up their six-year-old, right? Like, yeah. I like seeing that on someone's calendar. I know that person, you know, is, is, is modeling the behavior that we're hoping in this company. Now, they're probably finding other hours to make those up, yeah. and that's great, and that's kind of what we hope to do. So, so with that as sort of the foundation, it hasn't been as hard, I think, as it was 20 years ago, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, I'm 50 years old now, so when you're 28 and, you know, you're in a different place in your life, like, you're going to find different things have different priorities. And for now, I've got a seven and nine-year-old, two little girls. And so, like, like I don't want to miss a minute with them. So, yeah. like, I'm back for dinner every night. And, I mean, I, other than occasional work travel, which went away for COVID for a long time, but even now we don't travel as much as yeah. we used to. I'm back for, uh, you know, I'm there every morning when I make breakfast for them, um, take them to school, and I come here, and I'm there every night for dinner and they go to bed at 8.30 and I may turn my computer on for an hour, an hour and a half at that point or I have kind of bad sleeping habits from you know, <laughs> 3 to 5 a.m. so I may get a little time in there. <laughs> it's a whole different issue but that's probably better for like the Huberman podcast yeah, and yeah. sleeping and stuff. But, uh, you know, so I, I think, it, 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 you know, when you have a family like that, it's, it's relatively easy because you're just so committed to them mm-hmm. that it's hard to like you just not I'm not going to sacrifice that time and yeah. I, and I don't think the company demands it I think you know working smart and you know, you're still putting in plenty of hours don't get me mm-hmm. wrong but I think yeah you, you you give up some things like I don't do a whole lot of like personal recreation anymore like yeah. I don't play a ton of tennis or golf or mm-hmm. do some of the other stuff I would do maybe in my 20s or 30s but that's a phase for me too like at this stage like the seven, nine-year-olds still want to talk to me. When they're like 13 and 15 and they're like, leave me alone, dad, like maybe then I'll then I'll carve out a little more like recreation time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Shake the clubs, a little duster on those. Yeah, exactly, that type of thing. So I think you do give up a little bit. I think uh, I had an old military guy say to me once, you can be good in, you know, at work with your family and at golf, but you only get two of the three. <laughs> and and so I've definitely chosen, you know, the, the work and the family right now. So it's, I think that's pretty reasonable balance to pull off. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a life of trade-offs, so golf will have to wait for yeah, that. Yeah, that's, um, right. that's right. I have a quick hitter that I promised Sam didn't ask me to ask, okay. but uh, read some stuff this morning about four-day work week, headlines, numbers. Yeah. Just curious, as a CEO, your thoughts on the four-day work week. 
It's funny when you first said that. You know, my head went to four-day work week by uh, four-hour four work week. Yeah, yeah, Tim Ferriss, yeah. and I was yeah. like, oh wow, because that was part of my like entrepreneurial journey, like reading that and realizing oh, yeah. like, oh, you could do these different things. And so I had this little funny product company at one point where I was trying to do something like that. Uh-huh. Um, so I thought that's where you're going with this. Um, you know, I'm starting to see it, it seems to be a little bit of a buzz right now. Like, and the numbers are better. I, I have a hard time believing that that that's like a requirement to be better. Like, I think maybe it works for certain industries. For us, like, there's a commitment we're making to our customers to at least be here five days a week. Yeah. I mean, these these folks use us a lot, and we know that because if there's a, a like a system wide technical glitch, we our our phones light up and our email lights up, and so. I think being around for you know that the full five days is not a lot to ask. Um, you know, I think I think if that's, I think maybe that's one tool of many to try to drive productivity. Mm-hmm. I have a hard time believing it would be the right fit for us, um, but I haven't really studied it either. Uh, you know, I think now one thing I struggle with a little bit is we've always been remote from those early days. We never had an office, and so we've always been very comfortable with that. But as we've gotten bigger, it gets harder to know exactly output and input, and and, and so there's some challenges around productivity. I wouldn't, you know, I think every founder is facing that now as yeah. with a completely distributed workforce, and, you know, we have this office as we talked about, but it's used rather casually, mm-hmm. um, and I think we have good systems to kind of measure and make sure people are pulling their weight and really doing the job that you know we hope they're doing and I, we don't really have a problem with that but it doesn't mean I don't think like is everybody putting in equal effort it's hard to measure from where we're sitting um, and so I think you know you have to be looking at productivity tools whether it's a four-day work week with these tools in place or I think there's probably a combination of things and um, it hasn't, of all the challenges we have right now, that's not it. We just have really committed workforce. Uh, you know, everyone, I mean, Sam will talk to it. I mean, they, when we talk about culture, that means not just like, you know, ping pongs and pizza, right? It's like people really commit to doing their job and we rely on each other. And in fact, if anything, we might have challenges. We get sometimes in our surveys that like people don't want to go on vacation because they feel like they're going to let their colleagues down. Mm-hmm. And, and like, you know, hand off like, oh, I don't want to fumble this account. And if I'm gone, who's going to take care of it, et cetera. And that's a problem we have that it goes the other way. Like we got to figure out that how do we build better uh, uh, systems such that that person doesn't feel that way, that there's some redundancy there or coverage there, et cetera. So someone feels comfortable going on vacation. So like I think the four day work week is a sort of a of all the things I got to challenge that that's not one I probably will evaluate anytime soon yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate you fielding the question <laughs> yeah. just out of sheer curiosity <laughs> I, I don't see my company or many companies for that matter going to the four-day work week anytime yeah soon. I mean Sam wanted me to go to a six-day work week <laughs> but I I denied I, so. I denied I his mean, request the open on the yeah weekends, that's right, right. <laughs> I'm on by. yeah there you go. Well, you mentioned the four-hour work week, Tim Ferriss, being a book that mattered to you during your journey. What What yeah. are some other resources, books, podcasts, startup-wise that, that you like? Um, uh, podcasts, I mean, other than this one. Uh, <laughs> I mean, obviously, we've talked in, uh, offline about the All In podcast, which I think has you know, been fantastic mm-hmm. the last eight months, nine months. So I think it's Sometimes it gets a little far afield from startup, which mm-hmm. I like less, but I get what they're trying to do there. But I think startup-wise, I think there's some 
real smart minds there, and I think that's worth your time. And if you need to fast forward through, if you're not that interested in some of the big geopolitical or yeah. some of the media stuff, I think when they're actually talking about their expertise, their true expertise, it's phenomenal, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, to me is SaaS and startups, et cetera. Um, uh, Books-wise, I like a, a book. Um, there's a the CEO that I look to a little bit to try to emulate is um, Jeff Weiner from he was LinkedIn CEO for a number of time number of years, mm -hmm. um, and he talks about a book called uh, Conscious Business by a guy named Fred Kaufman, and so I got that one. He mentioned it, and I I keep it actually. It's in my office now, but. It, it's often in my bed, my, on my bedstand with some dog-eared stuff, and it's, mm -hmm. it really just talks about like, yeah, how to do the right thing in business, and and sort of like competition's really healthy, but like, competition driven by the right motivations, which isn't usually financial or ego. It's all these other things, and um, I, I think that's you know that's a fantastic book. I think it can be a tricky read because there's some. You know, it gets a little wordy at points, but there's some real powerful language in there around, to me, around understanding the value of business in terms of, you know, self-actualization and self-transcendence and building a community of care and delivering on that and, and what it means for your own metal and sort of that competitive space. And I think it's really powerful. So I use it when I feel myself spiraling, mm -hmm. right, which is easy to do uh, in this, in, you know, in this job. So... That's helpful. Um, more tactical, I like Predictably Irrational, which is a book about pricing that I think mm. is some really interesting ways of thinking about pricing and, and how humans are, as the title says, predictably irrational and how you can sort of predict their patterns a little bit. I think that's interesting. Um, yeah, that, uh, those are those are a couple mm -hmm. that I that I spend some time with. Yeah, those sound really cool. Definitely mm -hmm. to be yeah, added we'll to the list. Yeah, we'll link those. We'll link those in the show notes. Okay, cool. And add it to the personal list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Have you seen the Tim Ferriss? If you want a like long list, Tim Ferriss. Uh, what's it called? Tribe of Mentors. No. Mm -hmm. So Tim Ferriss has a book called The Tribe of Mentors, and it's like you know this thick mm -hmm. for those of you on the on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> That's about three inches thick, um, and. The it's he's interviewing uh, successful folks in all kinds of walks, whether it's like a big nonprofit or it's a, you know, it could be a yogi, it could be anybody, and and he you know asks hard hitting questions about you know what's the what what books influenced you, so you can come away with this like master list that like mm -hmm. you could spend your rest of your life chasing all of these, but it is. That is worth a flip through. I, I keep it um, at my house at home, and uh, it's a good like when you got you need a little distraction and you don't want to like jump on a digital device. Like yeah. you flip through there and hear from some of these really influential people and the way they think, and a lot about their discipline, how they show up every day, and and um, the tools they use for discipline and um, sort of self care is also that he does a lot on that too. So okay. that's that's worth a worth a look. Awesome. And so one of the most fulfilling and probably our, our favorite part of the show is giving advice to all of our listeners out there that may not know exactly where to start, whether it's in venture capital or startups or entrepreneurship in general. Yeah. And so with that said, you've already loaded this episode with tons of great advice, but yeah, would love to hear if you have any additional advice for aspiring entrepreneurs. Well, for entrepreneurs, I think there's a couple of things. One is like, do you want to be a founder and do it your like, you know, do you want to go and do it yourself, um, or you, you know, do your 
uh, skills lend itself better to an early stage employee and contributor, uh, because I think that's 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 a critical decision. Um, I think the startup life is not for everybody. Like we see it. Like I, I mentioned, some you know occasional bad hire. More often than not, it's around like the fact that you're going so fast that things are a little unsettled. Mm -hmm. And you know, like my wife works for a startup out of. Seattle called Amazon. Uh, as you can imagine, there's not a whole lot of like create like they have big systems. It's very predictable. Like she likes that. She likes the lines being drawn, and yeah. she's just really comfortable there and very successful in that environment. She'd be a disaster with us, right? Like <laughs> there's just too much like moving parts, and there's some unpredictability, and and so I think you have to do some you know make sure you understand who you are, and is this you know is this something you're comfortable in and. There's absolutely nothing wrong if that's not a comfort, you know, comfortable yeah. spot for you. But you better identify that because you otherwise, you'll be in an environment where that sort of unsettled nature will just eat at you. Um, so I, I think that's part of it. It's like understanding: Am I right for this world? And then inside of that world, am I, you know, do I have the appetite, ambition? to do be a founder or are you like more like geez no i'd love to contribute to that but i think i'm better in this this capacity whether that's you know whatever it could be head of sales or cs there's tons to do right. and contribute just you got to figure out so when you say what advice to an entrepreneurs i think you can almost broaden that to like what advice to folks who would consider a, a career inside of this mm -hmm. sort of fast-paced startup world because i think the, the you know, I don't know your listener base, but like, you know, founders are like, you got to be kind of a little screwed up in the head to be a founder. <laughs> and there are not that many of them, I, I don't think. I mean, you know, there's enough who try and say after a little while because it just doesn't, it's just not the right fit. So it's you, like, a, yeah, you got to be a little weird in the head. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I love that. And, yeah. and to wrap up the show, we want to make sure people know how to get in touch with you. Maybe that's on LinkedIn or other social media. Yeah, LinkedIn's good. I'm okay. pretty active on LinkedIn. If you send me a message on LinkedIn, I definitely see it. Um, okay. For those salespeople, I don't see yours, but no, <laughs> no I don't mind. No, I, I, it's funny because I get the sales calls all the time. And now watching our sales team, like I yeah. really appreciate it. And I'm always like very conscious about that. Yeah. Like, you know, people are sometimes rude to that. Like, we have salespeople yeah. picking up the phone, making those tough calls. So uh, I try to be really respectful of that. Of anybody who has a service offering that they think's in alignment uh, with what we do, I, I'm a pretty receptive audience. Yeah, yeah. And we'll be continuing to grow, so yes. I'm sure people can go to the, Keep calling. To the Interplay <laughs> job, job site as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there. our career site, we're still growing. And um and so you'll see, I think there's six or seven, at least eight, uh, six, seven, eight jobs posted up there today across a number of the different uh, department areas. Yeah. Well, Doug, this was an absolute pleasure. And I think this is a gem of an episode and excited to share with our company and tell your story a little bit to our listeners. So. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're kind of talking your own book here. It's a little, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure the audience will, you know, will believe that, that everything that they heard today. <laughs> A little bit biased, maybe. Yeah, but Brandon that's right. was asking half that's the true. questions. That's true. That's fair. That's fair. Well, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another dose of startups and venture capital. And as always, we appreciate our pilgrims spreading the word about the show. Share with your friends and help someone else make the pilgrimage. See you next time. She told me that she only
bumps my music when she's lonely. Thinks my vibe's a little low key, okie dokie. That's alright, but wait, I don't know how to do. 